we are hoping to show you just what is possible out there in our strange and wondrous world. One of the dogs started to howl. Almost immediately, all 400 dogs that were there started to howl along with it. We travel for business. We travel for pleasure. The conditions can change so quickly and it became very challenging to maneuver that kayak. We travel to expand our minds. Of course, the most dangerous animal in Africa is the hippo. More people are killed by hippos than anything else. Whether it's one state over. I was looking for a longer treatment, like 90 days, six months, and my treatment plan was to go hike the Appalachian Trail. Or halfway around the globe this fantastic high desert. You watch the sky at night, so you just see the Milky Way and shooting stars. If the world's a book, why only read one page? I'm Elizabeth Hill, and you're listening to a WAMC Northeast Public Radio production. This is Postcards from the Road. Here at Postcards, we strive to bring you stories from all walks of life. But what we rarely cover is what some would call forced travel. This week, we will be taking an academic look at the current refugee crisis. Our guide is Serena Parrick, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Religion at Northeastern University in Boston, and author of No Refuge, Ethics and the Global Refugee Crisis. Having written extensively on human rights and refugees, Parrick's book provides an explanation of ethical approaches to the global refugee crisis, along with numerous stories and first-person accounts. I asked her why she decided to write No Refuge. I have one other book on refugees. This is my third book. And after my first book about refugees came out, it was right around the 2016 presidential cycle, where refugees, if you remember, were used as a um, as a thing to scare people in order to stir up fears that candidates could take turns talking about how much they were going to protect us. So there was, seems like there was a lot of misinformation out there about refugees. And I began doing a lot of public talks uh, on the topic of refugees and our moral obligations to refugees. And the book emerged from that experience of doing public talks and realizing what kinds of misinformation people had about refugees and asylum seekers, how there was a real hunger, I thought, among people to understand what we owed refugees and how we could best help them and what they sh as individuals should be doing. So my experience uh, doing these talks in these different public forums was what led me to write No Refuge, which of course is a book that's intended for all audiences, students, scholars, but just general readers who have no background at all in the subject or in philosophy either. In your book, you discuss the refugee crisis, but you break it into two distinct crises. Could you explain that? I would be happy to. So usually when we hear the term the global refugee crisis, we think of it in a particular way. And as you mentioned, I really think we should pull it apart and understand that there are actually two crises happening separately. The first crisis is what I think that most readers in the U.S. will be familiar with, the arrival of large numbers of people at our border who are asking for help. And oftentimes these people are portrayed as terrorists, sexual predators, or at the very least economic threats, you know, people coming to steal our jobs. Um, in the book, I go through why those are all misperceptions, but nonetheless, the perception that they are 
they are um, sort of threats to us fuel the first crisis. So how should we respond? Should we help them? Should we treat them like security threats? But I think at the same time, we have to be aware that there is also a second crisis. And this crisis can only be seen from the perspective of somebody who is seeking refuge. And so I think the second refugee crisis is the fact that if you are a refugee in the 21st century, you have three real options. And none of those options actually provide you with the minimum conditions of human dignity, which is to say none of the options provide you with refuge. So the three options you would have as a refugee in the 21st century are first refugee camps. So you would leave the country that you were fleeing persecution from. You would go to another country, usually proximate to the country you're living in, register with the UNHCR, and live in one of these camp-like situations. I think people are kind of familiar with the tents that we see sometimes in the news. Uh, refugee camps can be great initially. They offer security, some food, some water, but because the average length of time that a person is going to be a refugee is 17 years, refugee camps are often insufficient to meet humans, human needs during that time. So even though there is some food, the food is often insufficient. There's some security, but the security is often terrible. In particular, gender-based violence is endemic in refugee camps. And most importantly, refugees feel like they don't have any autonomy in these camps. So they're not allowed to work. They're not allowed to move. They're not allowed to come and go as they please. So for that reason, many refugees choose not to go to refugee camps and receive help from the international community. And instead, will go to urban centers, so cities and countries peripheral to where they're fleeing from rather than refugee camps. And living in urban centers, these are sometimes called urban refugees, has the advantage of allowing refugees to have some freedom and some autonomy. So they can work, you know, in the black market, they can they can come and go with where they as they please. You know, some refugees from Syria, for example, liked living in cities close to Syria. They could go over the border, they could visit family when war, the war wasn't terrible. But of course, the downside is that they get very little aid from the international community. Fewer than one in 10 urban refugees gets any kind of help from the international community. Work is extremely precarious and many refugees go into debt. They have to send their children to work. Um, they have to do all kinds of things just to survive. Housing is also really precarious. But what many refugees say is the worst part of being an urban refugee is that they can't educate their children. So we have you know, children who are fleeing conflicts as well for not just one year or two years, but five years and 10 years and more who have no access to education. And this used to be an abstract point before the COVID crisis, of course. And now anyone who has children and thinks, oh, they're gonna miss a year of school. This is terrible. We have to do something about it. Can maybe better appreciate what it must be like to be an urban refugee and see your child year after year not being allowed to get an education. So those are the two main options, and the vast majority of refugees remain in the Global South. Over 85% stay in the Global South, either in refugee camps or living informally in urban settlements. But there are some refugees who look at both of these options and think, I can't do either. You know, I want right. my children to have some hope that they're going to have a life and be able to get an education, get a job, have a family, have some hope that their lives will be better than what they are now. And that small percentage of people will 
engage smugglers almost 100% of the time and try to seek asylum in a Western country, Australia, the United States, and the European Union being the most um, common destinations for people to go to. So these are very dangerous journeys, and deliberately so, the countries which receive asylum seekers, like the U.S., have put in place what are called deterrence policies that seek to make the journey as difficult and as dangerous as possible in order to deter people from making the journey. But there's an Eritrean proverb that says a, a dead goat doesn't fear a butcher's knife. Yeah. So what we often forget when we're setting these deterrence policies is that the people making the journeys believe this is their only hope. They have no other choice but to seek asylum and risk all the things that go along with it, rape, uh, other forms of violence, and of course, very all too often death. So this is the second crisis that in the 21st century, if you're a refugee, those are your three options. Refugee camps or urban settlements where over 90% of refugees stay in underfunded, insecure camps or urban squalor for on average 17 years. You draw from a lot of personal accounts in your book, and I was hoping you would introduce us to a few of these accounts. Sure, I'd be happy to. So those of you who might have read philosophy might know that this is kind of an unusual thing to do in a work of philosophy, because we tend to focus on, you know, sort of abstract arguments and, um, you know, reasoning. Right. But I really wanted to include stories for refugees because of how important it is to see the refugee crisis from the point of view of refugees. So I can tell you about Sina, who is a refugee from Eritrea, and she is a young woman who is particularly bright. She became an engineer. I think many people in the U.S. aren't really familiar with Eritrea as a country. So this is a tiny country in Africa, sometimes referred to as the North Korea of Africa because of how repressive the country is. So every adult is, is conscripted to the army for not just a temporary period, but indefinitely for their lives until the army says that they're done with them. They are told what job they will have, where they will live. Conditions are often terrible. And then, of course, if they break any of these almost arbitrary rules, the prisons are, uh, you know, just unspeakably horrific. So this woman, Sina, is growing up in this country you know, does her best like we all do under circumstances. She falls in love. She marries her teacher. Um, and then she is posted 500 miles away from her husband. At some point, he violates some arbitrary law, goes to prison, and he escapes from prison and visits Sina. And just by doing that means that he's likely to spend his, the rest of his life in jail. At this point, she realizes she's pregnant. And if she turns herself in, if she turns her husband in, if they in any way stay in the country, it's likely she would be tortured uh, and put in prison and very unlikely that her baby would survive. Yeah. So she and her husband begin this odyssey of sneaking out of Eritrea, which is very, very hard to do, of course, and require all the resources of their families can pool together for them to do this. But they can't stay in Africa either because it's such an authoritarian country. They actually have spies and refugee camps and throughout Africa that get a bounty for bringing back refugees from Eritrea to Eritrea so that they can be tortured and killed. But she gets out of Eritrea. She gets into Africa, but she realizes she can't stay in any of the refugee camps close to Eritrea. So she keeps going. Eventually, she ends up in Turkey and is has a choice of going into a 
raft at this point her husband she's she's lost contact with her husband he had to stay behind and the smugglers say you know i know this is a tiny dinghy but go ahead and get into it and then when we're further offshore there'll be a nice big luxurious boat waiting for you at this point cena is nine months pregnant past her due date yeah um you know like just an, an excruciating choice you know do i risk my life do i risk my baby's life or do i stay and risk you know uncertainty and danger in all kinds of other ways she gets on the boat um, close to Greece, the boat capsizes. But fortunately, she was close enough to the shore that people saw her boat capsizing, and an off-duty Greek army officer jumps into the water and saves a bunch of refugees, including Sina. And in some ways, her story is really hopeful. She's really lucky. She survives. The babies survive. And then she gets a scholarship to Germany, but she can't get the right papers because she can't prove that her husband had died. So she once again has to hire smugglers to go overland through Europe to try to reach Germany. And I like her story a lot because I think a lot of people can identify with being a young person just desperate to have your life, not even in any kind of exceptional life, but just to do your job and have right. your baby and be with your loved ones. Um, but I also tell a story uh, towards the end of the chapter on asylum about somebody who traffics in human beings and he buys human beings from smugglers and tortures them for money. And he, I include that story because of how brazen he is talking about the different forms of torture that he's innovated to try to maximize the kind of revenue he gets from from human beings. He's right. killed a few people, he says. He's never raped anyone. He's very proud of that. Uh, but he doesn't care. He's happy to talk to, this was an account written by a human rights worker because nobody cares. And he's very proud of his, his job <laughs> in a certain sense, which is yeah. also very shocking. And at the end of the book, I tell the story of some just ordinary people who end up risking quite a lot in order to help refugees. So I tell the story of Hans, who's actually a shepherd in Austria, who learns about how refugees are being treated in Hungary. They're put in cages, they're treated like animals, they're not fed. And he knows that many people in Hungary, this is in 2016, are trying to get to Germany or Sweden, which would actually allow them some kind of legal status and to be reunited right. with their families. So he smuggles them from Hungary through Austria to Germany, risking, you know, 20 years in jail for human trafficking to do this. And when when the um, journalist says, why, why would you do such a thing? You don't even know these people. He says, I am Jewish. And yeah. I was raised hearing stories of people helping Jews escape Nazi persecution and escape from concentration camps. And I couldn't hear these stories about refugees and do nothing. So he wasn't like a human rights activist or this you know extraordinary person. He was just a human being who decided that the status quo wasn't acceptable. And even if it meant risking jail time, he was going to help people. So I like to end on, on a hopeful note, because right. I feel like we're all called in many ways to help people in different ways. And it's good to know that people actually do these things and that there is, uh, there are these good <laughs> stories. <laughs> you mentioned COVID-19 and how some people are going to be able to relate a little more to the education that's uh, disrupted here in the United States and worldwide. How else has it affected the refugee crisis? So let me tell you a little bit how it's affected the, the lives of refugees first, and then uh, maybe a little bit about how I think our, it shifted our thinking about refugees. So refugees in refugee camps, as I mentioned, um, are kind of locked in. 
you know, in March when everyone was closing borders, refugee camps were also closed down. And what this meant was that a lot of the NGOs who were bringing in aid to refugee camps and in some cases education and other goods were prohibited from doing that. So it meant that refugees got a lot less help than they had previously had. In some cases, it also meant that gangs flourished in their place. So there's a refugee camp on the border of Mexico for asylum seekers waiting to come back into the U.S. So this is sometimes referred to as the first American, you know, refugee camp. It's not in the United States, but it's the, the result of our policies around asylum seekers. So in these refugee camps, um, gangs took over uh, in order to bring goods and resources, but then also to control people and decide who goes where and do what and um, enact all kinds of violence. So the lives of refugees in refugee camps were made much worse. In terms of asylum seekers, people who had started journeys to try to go to the U.S., Canada, the European Union to ask for asylum were prohibited from doing this. They were prohibited from traveling. And this meant that their journeys were disrupted and they were uh, they would end up in sort of random places throughout the world, not able to seek help, but not able to go home either. Countries like Uganda have for months now, since July, opened their borders and allowed asylum seekers in. You know, they quarantine them, they test them, and then right. once they pass that, they're allowed into the country. The U.S., of course, has gone in the opposite direction and used this as an excuse to deport asylum seekers um, and to lower even our standard of treatment for asylum seekers who are currently in the, the country. On the positive side, I suppose, because refugee camps were so closed off, we didn't see huge numbers of infections as many people expected we would. Right. That's starting to happen now. So increasingly now that you know we're maybe in this third wave, there's this fatigue that's been that's set in and people are traveling more, we're seeing more and more cases. But in refugee camps, social distancing is impossible. They're extremely crowded. Even things like hand washing is hard. I mean, you know, there's the refugee camp I mentioned outside of the US and Mexico has one toilet for every 60 people. So you can imagine the sanitary conditions are not great in general, and then certainly for the spread of COVID-19. And then finally, you know, when the disease begins to spread and when people need treatment and testing, you can imagine that there aren't going to be a lot of resources devoted to helping refugees because they're seen as, you know, not quite our problem and somebody we shouldn't be spending our precious resources on. So many people who are watching the situation are very, very worried about what might happen if the disease starts to spread in refugee camps. Right. How do we improve the system? Well, I'm answering this question on Election Day, and I can say you can vote for Joe Biden because <laughs> the policies enacted by the Trump administration for refugees have been so um, incredibly cruel and harmful to refugees, almost in, an, in a way that's been unprecedented in the U.S. history in terms of the amount of harm we've actually done to refugees. So it would be great if we could just stop harming refugees first and foremost. I think we should approach the situation from a structural perspective, which is to say we need to look at all the pieces that managed to create the outcome I described at the beginning of the interview, where refugees have only three options and none of them are sufficient. 
So there's no shortage of things we could do to change the system. There, there are a bunch of really innovative, interesting policy proposals that would be more efficient in distributing aid that would actually make aid dollars go a lot further and help refugees in really profound ways. For example, one of the things I think refugees really want is more agency. They want to be in control of their lives. They want to have a voice in the policies that are enacted upon them in order to help them. So there are a lot of things we could do that would give refugees some um, level of representation and agency and voice in these discussions. But I think the biggest thing that we can do is to learn about refugees and start to demand better treatment of them. One of the reasons these unjust structures have been allowed to flourish is because most people are unaware of them. And that is very deliberate. Our refugee camps are far away, so we can't see what happens to them. For the most part, policies around asylum function in a similar way. They're sort of below the radar. And I think once we start to be aware of what's being done in our name to refugees, um, we can start to demand something more. So unfortunately, it's not a small thing. It's not something that we can just do tomorrow and be done with it. Uh, and I like to stress that what we need is an attitude of sustained moral motivation because it's such a deep systemic problem. And what about refugees themselves? You know, refugees themselves is a really interesting question. I think that we often have the perception that refugees are needy and sort of waiting for us to help them. And from what I've read about the refugee experience is that it's quite the opposite. Refugees, at least from certain countries, I think of refugees from Syria, which you know has now displaced millions of people, many of whom are highly educated, middle-class people, very well connected to each other. So they, in a certain sense, understand the situation on the ground much better than we do. They're able to communicate about who the good smugglers are, what the best routes are, how to negotiate some of the harms and dangers of being refugees. So they, they are absolutely acting as agents with as much information as it's possible probably to have right about now. You know, I would say, sorry, I'm sorry we're doing such a bad job. <laughs> and I wish we could do better in the future. But I feel like refugees themselves are the vanguard and we should be listening to them as much as we can. Yeah. You know, the one thing I would like to add is something like this. Sometimes people read my book or hear me speak and get really depressed because the situation can sometimes seem so overwhelming and so big and so deep. And I hope that... This conversation is an invitation to think more about this issue because my belief is that once you start to think about it and once you start to understand the issue ethically, you can see these points of entry. You can see these arguments that can be made to people to have them be more sympathetic. You can see that the policy changes aren't drastic and don't require the end of civilization, but are fairly small, fairly inexpensive, fairly you know, that don't ask a lot from governments that would improve the lives of people profoundly. Don't despair, but realize that there are all kinds of ways that we can improve the situation quite profoundly, if only there's the will and the motivation to do so. Do you think that the mass media and the entertainment world has done justice by portraying what is going on with refugees? Or do you think that it's become too dramatized or they're focusing on the wrong thing? 
I'm pretty optimistic about the approach the media has taken to refugees, especially in the last few years. There have been a number of like really interesting documentary films that have gotten prominence in the sort of pop culture world in a way that they wouldn't have before. So I think we're actually seeing depictions of refugees in the media that are made by refugees or by people, you know, journalists who have spent you know decades working with refugees. To that extent, I'm I'm hopeful about it. I think there is a place for these divergent voices and in more creative, interesting kinds of media. Certainly, I think you know the Washington Post, the New York Times, um, you know, NPR have done a great job of staying on top of many of the really particularly egregious harms that have been enacted, say, in the last four years. There's always the danger that refugees are going to be portrayed as these vulnerable, helpless people just waiting for us to open our arms to them because that tends to be something that we're comfortable with and we're familiar with and perhaps that will sell. But I'm seeing more and more images that are not like that out there, and I think that's something to be hopeful about. We've been speaking with Serena Perrick about her new book, No Refuge, Ethics, and the Global Refugee Crisis. Perrick is an associate professor of philosophy and religion at Northeastern University. Her book is published by Oxford University Press. Postcards from the Road is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. I'm your host and producer, Elizabeth Hill. Our theme music is Cherry Blossom Wonders by Kevin McLeod. As always, if you like what you hear, subscribe on your audio app of choice. Visit WAMCpodcasts.org for more information. If you would like to share your travel story with postcards, email us at postcards at wamc.org.